ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Lovemore Ndoe was born in South Africa, near the border of what was then called Rhodesia. This was the 1970s. On one side of the border, there was apartheid, ruthlessly enforced by the regime, and on the other side, a bloody and brutal civil war. Lovemore witnessed and experienced plenty of violence as a child and as a teenager. It left him angry and despondent, and with a poor idea of the value of his own life. Unfortunately, a chance encounter with a security guard steered Lovemore into the local boxing gym. And rather than channeling his anger into the fight, boxing taught him how to win by not being angry. It made him a world champion, and it became Lovemore's ticket out of South Africa and into Australia. It also gave Lovemore some of the skills he still uses today as a lawyer in the Sydney suburb of Rockdale. Lovemore has written a book about his life, From the Ring to the Courtroom, and it's called Tough Love. Hi, Lovemore. Hi. It's an honour to be here. Tell me about the town you grew up in, in South Africa, whereabouts it was in South Africa. I was born in a small town called Messina, previously known as Messina. Uh, It's right at the border between South Africa and Zimbabwe on uh, what's called the Limpopo province. What did it look like in the country around? Can you describe what it was like for you as a kid? Well, there was nothing special about it, particularly where I lived. As you are aware, back then during apartheid, black people, we were not allowed to live in towns or, you know, in the city. So we lived in the outskirts. So I, I grew up exposed to poverty. So, and when I say poor, I mean... To an extent that, you know, there were days that go by without a meal or sometimes we just have one meal a day. I, I come from a very big family. There were seven of us, but there were actually nine of us because when my, my dad met my mom, he already had two children from his previous marriage. Uh, so there were nine children. Um, nine children in the, in the one, one home. In the one home. And we both lived in this little shack. Yeah, it was tough. What did your family do, your father and your mother do, to support the family? My father was, um, you know, he would do whatever he could to make a living for his, you know, to feed his children. One of the things he did was fishing. Eventually, he also worked for the army uh, as a mechanic. But he did a lot of different odd jobs that he could to feed the family. My mom used to sell, you know, fruits and fish and stuff at the markets. When you say your dad did fishing, was that river fishing we're talking about? That's river fishing, yes. Like uh, river fishing where crocodiles are? Yes. You know, actually I'll tell you a story. Because I was the first boy in the family, so that came with a lot of responsibilities. And one of the responsibilities was to help the family make a living. So one of the things I used to do was to help dad with fishing. So I would sometimes go set up, you know, fishing nets, you know, in the Limpopo River, which was pretty much full of crocodiles. And it it really didn't bother me if crocodile was sitting about five, ten metres. I was still jumping into the water. Why? I was made to believe that if you're a good person, the crocodiles won't touch you, they won't do anything. But over the years, I've come to realise, you know, that there was just a lot of BS, you know. <laughs> Crocodiles aren't that discriminating, are they? No, no, no. no. And so, yeah, so the vendor people always be- believe that if you're a good person, the water gods will always protect you. But a lot of people died. And I was just lucky 
not to have ended up as dinner for crocodiles. So were you putting, like, these nets in the water while crocodiles were watching you? Yeah, there were crocodiles all over the place. It's amazing, you know, what your mind can do. If you're made to believe in something and you just believe in it, it works miracles. And I believe, because I believed in everything they told me, that's why I'm still around today. Now, this was at a time since you were close to the border of Zimbabwe, which is then called Rhodesia. Wasn't this when the civil war was going on between Ian Smith's colonial regime and the ZANU-PF party and all that? And, and were, you, were you aware of that war going on on the other side of the border? We, we were aware, but just to a certain extent, because the South African media during apartheid didn't want us to know more about what was happening in our neighbouring countries. But I got to know more about, you know, what was happening in Zimbabwe. We eventually moved to Zimbabwe because I couldn't start school in South Africa. So my parents decided we were going to move, move to Zimbabwe so I could start school. My father was actually born in Zimbabwe and he met my mom in South Africa. We went to Zimbabwe in 1978 you know, and at the time there was ongoing civil unrest in, uh, in, in, in Zimbabwe. Who were you staying with when you moved into Zimbabwe? We were staying with uh, my, my uncle, you know, my, my father's younger brother. Tell me what happened on this one night while you were there in that house. Uh, I recall one night we were asleep and then all of a sudden we got, you know, woken up and then uh, we were told we needed to um, pick up whatever we can and, 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 and run. Who told you that? It was my mom and uh, an auntie. I didn't know what was going on, but then the cousin of mine and myself, we had to stay behind, but all the other kids left. And then I recall later on when I looked outside and I saw there was a big fire under a tree. People were seated there. My father was also sitting there. Um, and there were people carrying guns. Turned out there were the ZANU-PF gorillas. And, um, Robert Mugabe's Robert gorillas. Mugabe's, yeah, gorillas. And, and they were torturing people. They were abusing people. They were beating up people, saying, if you don't vote for Robert Mugabe, this is what's going to happen. How old were you when you saw this? I would have been about eight. And uh, for the first time, you know, I witnessed things that I had to live with for, for a long time. I saw a man I knew as the local chief getting tortured. Uh, you know, he eventually died. It, it's gruesome to, to, to explain some of the things that happened, but I also saw the, the chief's wives getting her, you know, her tongue and lips, you know, chopped off. People were getting beaten up. Young female teenagers were getting raped. Yeah. What about your father? Where was he in all of this? He was sitting there, uh, and while we were sitting and watching this, my mom, uh, one of my aunties came back and, you know, and say, told my cousin and I that we, did, we needed to leave as well. So we left, and then we came back with a group of other children the next day. And then when I came back, that dad wasn't there, and then I later found out that dad has, was attacked with an axe. He almost died. The story is uh, he was actually taken to hospital. By the time he got to the hospital, he was pronounced dead. So they put him in a mortuary, and eventually later on, when the nurses went on to put other dead bodies in the corpses in the mortuary, they heard him screaming. And, you know, that's when they took him out of the mortuary. So, yeah, so those, those are some of the things that I had to witness in Zimbabwe. It was really bad. As an eight-year-old, what kind of an idea does that give you about, I don't know, the value of human life or something? 
Look, at the time, I felt like uh, there was no value on my life. You know, you, you, you kind of get desensitized. And that's how I felt. You know, I felt like my life was worth nothing. And then eventually when we decided to come back to South Africa a few years later, things were worse in South Africa because at the time the ANC uh, was fighting hard to get rid of apartheid. And, and, and the former racist regime at the time was doing everything they could to stop us, you know, including killing us if they could. I recall during one of the protests, we were protesting against the government filling up our schools with white teachers you know, uh, at the time when blacks couldn't teach in white schools and at a time where we felt we were forced on an educational system that wasn't assisting us, you know, uh, the Bantu educational system that was pretty much created to fail us as black people. So we were protesting, my friend and I, his name was Pato. I just didn't feel good about it that day. You know, for some reason, it's like I felt like something was going to happen. You know, and uh, yes, um, Pato got shot. And he died in my arms. I was 13 at the time, and Patu was only 12 years of age. Who was doing the shooting? The police. Just fired into the crowd and killed a kid? Just killed a kid. It was common. So Patu wasn't the first one and wasn't the last one. You know, uh, a lot of people died. You know, a lot of kids died. A lot of people were left, you know, with lifelong mental, psychological, you know, injuries. I suspect that someone who has seen all that stuff by the time of 13, I suppose it's really easy to conclude that that's the way of the world, that's what the world is is like. Is that what you thought the world was like? Look, I always, I think I'm, I'm a bit different, you know, when it comes to things like that. I always believe in hope. I always had hope that things were going to change someday for the better. I always had hope that we were someday going to get rid of, you know, the racist regime and create a better South Africa. And I think it also helped that, you know, we knew much about what was happening with people like Nelson Mandela, you know, who stood up for the struggle uh, and, and we believed in what he was doing. And I think that that helped me as a young kid then and gave me hope things will change for the better. So I didn't give up on life because of that. Anything that happens in life happens for a reason, whether it's good or bad. And I always believe even if it's something bad, something good can always come out of it. You know, I look at my life, for example, I didn't start school till I was nine years of age. And when I started school, I had to find a job so I could pay for my school uniforms, I could pay for my school fees. That did not stop me from pursuing my, my, my dreams. You know, you look at it today, I hold seven university degrees. So I just believe <laughs> the fact that yeah. I started school late encouraged me to study hard, you know, it, it allowed me to, you know, epitomize the value of education. Now, I don't think you would do that, you know, if you didn't have hope. I think if I'd gone through that, I would have been very angry, though, very angry. Did you have that rage? I was very angry when I was growing up. I was a very, very, very angry young man, uh, and it had a lot to do with the environment where I grew up, uh, what I was exposed to as a child, coming from a very, very poor family and having to witness all these atrocities and just the way the apartheid system was treating us. I don't know if you know much about apartheid, but you know, apartheid was pretty much about segregation. It was an era of darkness in, in, in South Africa, in particular when it came to black people. So that just created a lot of anger in me it wasn't right for me to feel like in my own country I was treated you know, as a savage. 
not being intellectual the same as white people, only because I happen to be black. The police system was created to police blacks while it saved whites. The justice system looked different for black people as it did for whites. You know, so all those things just made me angry. So I was a very angry young man. A friend of mine explained to me that apartheid was actually a form of totalitarianism. It was an ideology that crept into every aspect of everyone's lives, particularly, of course, black South Africans. It affected who you could meet, where you lived, where you could travel to. It affected almost every aspect of your life. How does that sound to you? It did. That's the, I think that's the best description of it, you know, because if you look at it, you know, black people, like I said earlier on, we were not. We couldn't live in the town or in the city. We, we had to live in the outskirts, which we call townships. And you know, black people had to carry these passbooks with them. And, and eventually, we were just segregated. You know, like you look, every tribe was given a certain area. Like the Venda people, my people, we ended up in what's called Venda land. The Zulus ended up in Zulu land. The Tosses in Tosa land. And this was more about division, dividing us. And 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 I think. They purposely did it, you know, because, you know, if you divide people, you can, you are always going to control them. And they knew if we united as blacks, irrespective of what tribe you came from, we were going to, you know, overcome the racist regime quicker than we did. So they kept us separated. It's, it's horrific, but there's also something pathetic about it too at the same time, to, to have to sort of hammer in those nails so hard to make this crap ideology work. Did you want to get out? Did you really want to leave South Africa at that point? Look, I dreamt of leaving South Africa. I wanted to leave South Africa. And I knew my only ticket out of South Africa was going to be, you know, through sports. So when I was young, I tried all sorts of sports. You know, I tried soccer. I I even played netball. You know, with girls, I did everything because I just needed something to get me out of South Africa, something to get me out of apartheid South Africa, something to get me away from poverty. But like you mentioned, you know, this anger issue, I had so much anger and that didn't help with most of the sports. I was a good soccer player, but I didn't last long in the field because often uh, I would be knocking people out instead of playing soccer. i will be chasing another player instead of chasing, you know, the, the ball itself. So each time somebody played, you know... And, and, and That's I'm not, not good for the game, is no, it? No, and I'm not proud of it, you know, no, honestly. No. Each time somebody played rough, I'll turn around and knock them out, and then I'll get kicked out. So I didn't last long in the field. So it so happened one time we were playing against one of the local schools, and this kid played rough, and again, I knocked him out cold, and they had to carry him out on a stretcher. And then they had to get a security guard to escort me out of the field. And I remember when he was walking me out, he said to me, kid, you know, I don't think soccer is for you. You know, I've been watching you. <laughs> I've been watching you. You don't yeah. seem to last long in the field. And he was right. People used to place bets to see how long I was going to last in the field. At one stage, they gave me a nickname, Mr. Red. That's how often I got, you know, the red card. So I remember he said to me, look, kid, I think you should try out boxing. Then I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose, you know. So the next day, I went to a boxing gym. What was this gym like? You were you know, it, was, uh, it was at a copper mine, so it was it wasn't a fancy looking, it was a run-down gym. But, you know, it was all we had at the time. The first time I got there, he said to me, look, we're going to have to work on your anger. And I was thinking, Why? Why work on my anger? This is boxing. This is fighting. I need to be angry to fight. 
He said, no, okay, that's not how it works. You know, boxing is scientific. You need to, you need to have a clear mind if you're going to fight, you know, and, and perform well. You know, boxing is like playing a game of chess. You need to be have that clear mind with you. Who was this trainer? His name was Divas, uh, Divas Chirwa. His nickname was Makaza, which means the cold one. He used to knock them out and they, you know, knock them out cold. So they started calling him Makaza, the cold one. I had to learn the hard way. So he put me in sparring against bigger boys. And I kept getting beat up when, you know, and he kept saying to me, Lama, you got to calm down. And then eventually I started to calm down and I realized each time I calm down, I would perform better, you know, I would respond well to punches and I would perform well. How, how, how did you ramp down your anger in your mind? What, what was your way of, of not running into anger? stopping yourself or not even getting angry in the first place? Well, I guess it was a combination of many things. One of them getting beat up every time I get angry. (laughs) 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 And then I realised my boxing career is not going anywhere. (laughs) You know, maybe I need to work on something different. You know, know, I think it's all... What I'm saying to you is there's a bit of mental strength here, (laughs) surely, apart from just having having that pounded into you. I'm sure sure there's some kind of mental discipline. You you, you have to have some mental discipline. Yes, it was. You know, I I had to tell myself, look, love more, this is not working. Try something else that's going to work. So, you know, I tried to stay calm and it worked, you know, and, and, and I'm grateful because not only did that improve my boxing career, but it changed me as a person, you know, and I become this calm, collected person that I am today. And I believe, I believe that had it not been for boxing, I'll probably be dead today or locked up because at the time, you know, growing up in South Africa, at the time when, you know, pretty much every teenager walked around with a gun or knife, had I not changed my attitude, you know, something terrible would have happened. Because you were sort of making progress with the way you have your self-control and all that and that, that mental discipline as well, did you love boxing then? Did that teach you to love the sport? I fell in love with the sport right away. Because I had so much anger in me and I had so much aggression in me and that was my way to deal with that aggression and anger. Just getting in there, hitting the bag, hitting the, you know, the pads, doing all that heavy training, it disciplined me. So tell me about the first proper amateur fight you had against a welterweight from the gym you were training in. It was one of those intra fights where the, whoever wins is going to go Fight. So we were going to commi- uh, compete against the army team. So we were representing the local mine team. And um, I was on a featherweight then, which meant, you know, I weighed like 57 kilos. But they didn't care that back then, you know, they just matched you against anyone. Uh, so I, my first fight, I remember, I fought this guy. His name was Robert. He, was, he had already been a national champion. He worked at the mines. He was an adult. And how old were you? I was 14. You know, he would have been about 24, 25. So, you know, I was 14? only a kid. I was only a kid. You know, it was only three months after I started boxing. So I, I had my first amateur fight three months into when I started boxing. And were people taking bets? People were taking bets that Lamo was going to get killed. <laughs> you know, some people told me, Lamo, no, you need to pull out of this fight. My school teachers were concerned that I was going to get hurt. And you wouldn't have even been fully grown. You're 14. Yeah. So, so, so what happened in the fight? At that time, I really didn't care much about my life. You know, I think the system, the apartheid system, had me so desensitised that I really didn't care much about my life. I didn't care whether I was going to hurt, get hurt or get killed. But I knew this guy, you know, I, I knew he was underestimating me and I knew he was a womanizer, and I knew he liked the drink 
So I, you know, he took me lightly. He, he just thought he was just going to walk all over me. And, and that sort of gave me some sort of belief that, you know, I could, I could be this guy. Um, when the fight started, he just walked straight up to me, you know, thinking he was just going to land that big punch and knock me out. And, and for some reason, and I still ask myself out to this day, I don't know why, but for some reason I just ducked and I closed my eyes. I don't know why I closed my eyes. But then I came back with a left hook, I caught him flash on the chin, and I dropped him. Okay, it took him about, it took more than 10 minutes to revive him. So you won with a knockout? I won with a knockout, and, and I'll be the first one to admit that it was a lucky punch. Okay, but that lucky punch made me who I am today because had I not won that fight, I probably would have walked away from boxing. Then I remember the next day when I went to school, everybody was talking about it, you know, at the school assembly, you know, the principal was talking about it. So I became a star overnight. People started talking about Lama is going to be the next big thing, you know, in boxing. And that just made me want to continue fighting. So that lucky punch made me who I am today. How much did you like all this attention you were suddenly getting? Oh, I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. All of a sudden, this kid from nowhere is getting all this attention. And this kid that everybody thought was going to get killed did the impossible. Tell me how you, that kind of sort of got you into some trouble at the local supermarket there. It did. Look, um, so eventually my boxing career picked up and uh, I did well as an amateur. In fact, I went on to become four-time South African champion as an amateur uh, with a great record, about 68 fights for 66 wins. And uh, I started becoming the talk of town. There was a supermarket where we lived and it was owned by a white man. So he owned a supermarket where we used to go and, you know, you know, buy our groceries and stuff. And he had a daughter uh, who was about my age. And, and I recall every time I went there, you know, she would smile at me. She, she, she would be nice to me. Sometimes she just let me walk away with, without paying. And I, I found it a bit strange, but I thought, hey, getting free groceries, why not? But so then, she liked you? Yes, she did. And I recall the black people that worked there started telling me, Lama, this girl is always talking about you. This girl likes you. You know, but you got to be careful. If the father finds out something bad is going to happen, okay? I never thought anything big about it. So eventually the father found out, and I recall one night, you know, we were sleeping in the middle of the night. The cops, the police just came, started kicking down our little shack, and I was dragged. They took me to the cop station. They wanted to hit me up with some trumped-up charges. Apparently I had sexually assaulted this girl. I had nothing to do with it. I've never... Apart from talking to the girl, nothing has ever happened between us. And the good thing was the girl said, you know, she, she spoke up. When they found out that this girl was going to speak up, tell the truth that nothing ever happened, they decided not to charge me, but they decided to just lock me up. So they took me to what, a place called Lutrichat, which is about 90 kilometers from where I lived. I was uh, locked up for 90 days with no charge. And and the worst thing they did was they actually put me in ad, in an adult prison. Is you know, they probably thought I was gonna get you know um, sexual abused, tortured. So back then they had a law where they could lock up political activists up to ninety days without a charge. But the law was getting abused and getting used to anyone they didn't like, and I happened to be one of them. So after the ninety days, they took me back to Messina, my hometown. And I went before a magistrate on that day. On that day, I get charged for stealing. Apparently, I stole candy from that supermarket. So it went from sexual assault to spending time in, in, in prison with no charge 
to stealing candy. And then I get sentenced to six cards, which meant I had to get get dragged to the police station that day and get punished, you know, with a bamboo stick which drew blood. So I wasn't getting punished for allegedly stealing candies. I knew I was getting punished for flirting or with a white girl or, you know, for being liked by a white girl because they kept saying to me, this is what you get when you mess with white girls. They kept referring to me as a gaffer, a kefer, which was a very, very derogatory term that they use. It's more similar to the N-word. So they kept referring to me, you know, um, as a careful when they were punishing me. And I lost my cool. Uh, I became the old love more. You know, I just became angry and I told them to go, you know, to F off. And that was the worst mistake I made because following that, they almost killed me. They started kicking me. They bruised my ribs. They broke my left arm. They chipped my front tooth. But the worst thing they did was they got a dog and they set a dog on me. It almost beat off my eye. Often people see this guy, you know, um, uh, under my right eye and think it's from boxing. Now, this is a dog bite. It almost took off my eye. And um, look, after this incident, you know, when I was recovering in hospital, I recall thinking to myself, now, this is wrong. I need to do something about this, you know. I need to fight for justice one day. That's when I decided that someday I was going to become a lawyer or a political activist and fight for justice for others. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So you said you were brought before the police to be caned with this bamboo cane and then they kicked you and assaulted you and set a dog upon you. So you were recruited not long after this into the army boxing team what was that like for you to enter the army of this regime <coughs> you were now opposed to? Was Look, that strange? It was. Uh, the thing is, my father worked for the army as a mechanic. He, he kept saying to me, Lama, you got to join the army. You know, you could make a living. But I didn't believe in the system then. I said, no. Why? Join the army so I can kill my own people. Would it offer you some protection joining the army in those days? I mean, it would, it would be a lot harder for police to pick you up and give you and cane you and, and kick you half to death if you've got a uniform on? Honestly, it didn't really matter as long as you're black. The black policemen or the military were getting any best treatment. As long as you're black, they didn't care. They were happy to use you to fight their fights, but, you know, you're still rated as a savage. So once you were brought in, what was your commandant like? He was a great man. I think you could say even though apartheid was about segregation, some white people saw things differently. Some white people believed in equality and, uh, you know, treated people with, with respect. And that was the thing that I saw with the commandant. He told me, Lamo, you know, he was happy to see me join the army team. And he kept telling me, Lamo, you know, you've got so much talent. And I believe you could become something big one day if you keep your, you know, your head straight and, and focused. So he was a great man. He didn't see color in me. He just saw talent, someone who's got, you know, who could have a great future in boxing. 
Were you able to fight internationally at that stage? I couldn't because at the time South Africa was banned from international competition because of apartheid. And, and, and up to this day, I still feel if there's something that I really regret is not having that opportunity to fight international because I, I believe I could have won gold in the Olympics. And I believe I had what it took to perform at, at an international level and win gold at the Olympics. But that was taken away from me. It's funny, you know, those sanctions were effective in helping end uh, persuading the regime it had to change. But it is pretty funny, though, you're a victim of apartheid at one end and and the sanctions aren't helping you either. It, it is. You know, it's funny. The mm. world works in a very strange way. <laughs> so how well were you doing on the amateur circuit in South Africa? At I did time? well. You know, like I went on to become four-time South African champion. I had a very impressive record. We're not talking like a fight every three months here, are we, when you were on that circuit. How often were you fighting? How regular? Were, how, how quickly would these matches turn? Oh, around? it was happening pretty quick, you know, and sometimes you would fight three times a day. You how, know, for the, three for, times a day? Yes. How can anyone do that? Well, that's what, you know, when, you went, uh, when we fought for the provincial titles or the national titles, there were so many people coming from different provinces and you all come together, you've got to eliminate each other. So there's so many fighters. And, and sometimes you had to fight three times a day to eliminate each other. And right, it's like a tournament then. Yes. But, but I suppose most of those fights would be pretty quick with you in the ring. Well, most of, you know, I was, it's funny, you know, um, when I was an amateur, all I thought about was well, I just wanted to knock people out. That, that was my way of fighting. But, you know, you, you, you can't have that star in, in, in professional boxing because you're not going to knock everybody out. So if you don't knock them out, what's going to happen? So you need to be able to box and use power if you can, but if that doesn't work, you've got to have something to fall back on. You know, you've got to use a different style. So meanwhile, in the late 80s, the apartheid regime started to dismantle itself. Mandela was released from prison, um, and in 1994, Mandela was at last elected president of a new democratic South, South Africa. Do you remember that time? And where were you on election night when Mandela became president? I actually remember that like, like yesterday. In fact, I remember leading up to the elections, a lot of, a lot of things happened. And you know, there was, I remember what used to be called the Afrikaner of Vierstand Bewegen, the AWB. They were like the KKK, you know, of South Africa. They were opposing these elections and they were killing people. They were like a terrorist organization. So it caused a lot of um, problems uh, prior to the election. And apart from that, you know, we also had black-on-black violence, particularly between the African National Congress members and the Inkata Freedom Fighters, uh, who were led by Mongo Sutu Butelezi. And, and, and a lot of people died, especially in the hostels where black people lived and in the taxi ranks. A lot of killings happened. So I do remember that election. When it eventually took place, it was like a dream come true. Yeah, Mandela got elected, but and that predicted civil war just didn't happen. It just didn't happen. Look, I, I think one of the reasons it didn't happen was because of um, the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission that was put in place that allowed people to come forward and, and talk about what happened. It allowed people to forgive each other it allowed people to know about what happened to their loved ones during uh, the struggle. And that in itself, I think it helped stop a possible civil war. How about the figure of Mandela himself and his statesmanlike abilities? He was a great man. You know, I think 
there is never going to be another Nelson Mandela in South Africa. And it's really sad when I look at the current situation in South Africa. I look at all that hard work he's put in place, all those sacrifices that are going down the drain because all the leaders that have taken over since he stepped down from office, they're pretty much destroying the country. All that hard work that we fought for is going down the drain. If you remember, the idea was, you know, was during the political struggle, the idea was that, you know, once South Africa become democratic country, it would become a South Africa for all to live in harmony, in peace, and people would share the wealth, there'd be an equal distribution of national resources. But you look at it now, that's not what's happening, you know. Uh, the, the, the country is falling apart because of corruption, pronism, elitism, you know, you name it. It makes me sad just thinking about, you know, what's happening currently in South Africa. So not long after apartheid ended and Mandela was elected, you made your first trip to Australia. What brought you to Newcastle, of all places, <laughs> in New South Wales? I was lucky. I got offered a fight. Uh, in fact, it's funny how it came about. A guy who's actually my best friend today, who was a former South African who moved to Australia and went into the garment business, you know, he became very successful. He got approached by Sky Channel and uh, Costa Zoo's team. They asked him if he could promote one of Costa Zoo's fights when Zoo was fighting Roger Mayweather. So he said, look, yeah, I'll put the fight on, on the proviso that you put two South Africans on the card. So I happened to be one of those South Africans. And, and I recall it was like a dream come true when I finally got that opportunity to fight in, in Australia. But I remember before I left, I did my research you know, about Australia. And oh, yeah. I, I needed to find out where I was going. You know, what did you read? You know, one of the things that I found out was, you know, Australia used to have a, you know, a keep Australia-wide policy. So I thought to myself, oh, it looks like I'm going to another South Africa. Uh, <laughs> and what was the reality once you got off the plane? Look, I, I remember when I got off the plane, the reception that I got, the treatment that I got made me fall in love with this country. People didn't see a black man. People saw a human being and they treated me like a human being. And that's what made me fall in love with this country. And I remember telling myself, you know what, I'm moving to Australia to live permanently. After that fight, I went back to South Africa and I told my family, I'm moving to Australia. And they were like, oh, have you done your research? I was like, yeah, I did. You know, you didn't see, you haven't seen what I've seen. I'm going back to Australia. They were like, oh, they're going to send you back on a boat. <laughs> I said, no. Nah, nah. You're not coming as, a, as an asylum seeker, no. I no. said, and today... I don't regret making that move. It was the best move I ever made coming to this beautiful country that provided me with so many opportunities. It allowed me to prove to so many people that no matter where you come from, no matter what you've been exposed to, if you are given an opportunity and you take advantage of that opportunity, you will always excel in life. So Australia provided me with those opportunities to be who I am today. That's why today I like to give back to the community. In particular, I do a lot of you know, pro bono work for Indigenous people. I also serve you know, um, as a reserve in the Australian Army. I'm an infantry soldier. That gives me an opportunity to give back to the community because if there are floods out there, I'm out there helping people. If there are fires out there, I'm out there helping people. For me, I feel in life... You know, you have to serve something greater than yourself. 
How was your boxing career going once you moved here? Did it take off after that? It wasn't that easy. I had some difficulties with promoters, but I did well. You know, remember I came through what used to to be called a distinguished talent visa, which meant I had to show that I had distinguished talent. So, so I you was, had to win. I had to win. So you had to win to stay. <laughs> yes. So I wasn't. <laughs> so I wasn't fighting just to make money. <laughs> There's something a bit Hunger Games about all this, isn't there? Like you've got to, you've got to win a fight to stay in Australia. Yeah. Oh wow! I had That's, to show distinguished talent. Right. Okay. So that means I had to knock people out. <laughs> so, <laughs> So, that, that, that's tough, love more. That's it, the, it was yeah, tough, but yeah. you look, you know, I won some good fights. I got ranked. I had issues with the promoters at some stage. Uh, so it wasn't easy, you know. Um, but I kept my cool, and eventually I got my permanent residence. And then I told the promoter, you give me a world title, or I'm not doing what you want. And, uh, you know, I, I had to stop fighting for almost 14 months. You know, at the time, I was ranked you know, number two WBC with the number one ranking vacant. So technically I was the number one leading contender for the title, but the title was just changing hands while I was sitting there not getting a shot. So eventually I had to be inactive for 14 months. I lost my ranking number two in the world to nowhere in the world. But that gave me an opportunity to go study. You know, I realized, well, you know, I got 14 months before the contract runs out. What do I do with these 14 months? That's when I decided to go to university and enroll. So something good came out of that, you know, bad situation. When you're preparing for a fight mentally, do you preview that fight in your mind long before you get into the ring? By the time I step into the ring, I've probably fought my opponent a thousand times already, you know, in my mind. It becomes my daily focus. I've already won and lost the fight so many times mentally. Uh, you have to focus, you have to think about the fight. And I always tell people, you have to stay focused. And I always tell people, you have to be nervous going into a fight because if you're not nervous, you're either on drugs or something. Uh, Because if you're not nervous, that means you're underestimating your opponent. And that's the last thing you want to do. You don't underestimate your opponent, that's when you get knocked out. So the fact that you're Nervous means you're not taking your opponent lightly and you are aware of what could happen. You know, there's a possibility things might not go your way and there's a possibility that things might go your way. So, you know, you're taking the fight seriously. So if you rehearse that fight in your head again and again and again and you're winning and you're losing and you're winning and you're losing and you're doing it again and again, I'm presuming you're doing this while you're running, while you're lying in bed, while you're in the shower, while you're doing all kinds of things. If you, Does that mean when the match comes... You've seen it already before? You've seen it all before? Whatever that your opponent's going to do? It means by the time I step into the ring, I'm prepared. I'm ready for anything. There's nothing I don't expect to see coming from my opponent. So I expect everything that's gonna, he's going to dish out, I expect that to happen. And I found, like I said, it was, I've lost and won the fight so many times mentally. But by the time I step into the ring, I'm ready to win. It's a good thing to have that fight play out in your head leading into the fight because it prepares you for it. Lee Sales told me once her dad was a military man, an army man, and he used to live by the slogan, which was, prior preparation prevents piss-poor performance. That was his, that was his slogan. <laughs> your like slogan that. too, you like that? I like that. <laughs> <laughs> that was the five or six Ps. I can't, I can't tell how many Ps there are. 
how do you think about yourself in, in comparison to your opponent in a fight? You, you have to believe in yourself. You have to believe you're better than yourself and you have to do things differently and better than yourself. So one of the things I used to do is, um, you know, I used to go run midnight when everybody's sleeping. Mentally, I tell myself, wow, my opponent is, well, my opponent is sleeping, I'm training. So, so your alarm would go off and you would wake up? I'd wake up and go and run. At midnight? At midnight. Mentally, it just gave me this advantage that I feel like, okay, while he's sleeping, I'm doing something. Okay, so I used to train about six hours a day, which meant, you know, I would break it to two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon, two hours in the evening. So I felt I had to do more. It was like, you know, it was my, it was my profession. It was my job. Like you go to work uh, nine to five. I had to do, you know, the six hour training. So it made me feel I was doing something. I had to do something better than my opponent. So you've done all that. I've and, done all that. And then there's the match and you stand there in the ring and you do that thing where you touch gloves and you look at the opponent. You look... Do you look I at try, him? I actually used to look through my opponent. Through him? Yes. You know, I'll be looking at him. I wouldn't even see his eyes. I'm looking through him and I'm thinking, I just want to smash that face. So he's just an obstacle then? He's just an obstacle that's standing on my way. And he's not scary? He's not scared of me. I'm not scared of him. So at the peak of your career, as you were saying, you took this period off to study. You studied journalism at first? Yes. And then law? Yes. So what happened was uh, I enrolled in a um, communication degree. I wanted to pursue journalism. Uh, I, I remember I, I wrote a, an assignment. I had to do an essay. And um, one of my lecturers, she read it and she said to me, Love more, I think you should consider, you know, law or politics. Because I, I wrote this paper about South Africa. I wrote about the unequal distribution of national resources in South Africa. And she said, you should definitely consider law or politics. It's like she read my mind. That's something I always wanted to do. And then the following year, I enrolled into a double degree in communications and law. I think a lot of Australians grow up thinking democracy and rule of law is normal. And it is normal in Australia. Someone like you and other migrants come to Australia who, have, who in their other lives didn't know democracy and rule of law and can have a very different view on how normal it is to live under those conditions. Do you have a view on all of that? I do, you know, like, and you're right, you know, growing up in South Africa, the rule of law, which is supposed to be sacrosanct, doesn't exist at all. And, and those in power are the rule unto themselves, are the law unto themselves. And, and I think growing up in, in, in a country like Australia with so many opportunities with, you know, with where democracy does apply, people don't really appreciate what they have. Uh, someone that's come from South Africa like, like myself who was exposed to apartheid, I, I tend, you know, people like me, we tend to appreciate this country more than the people that were born here because they don't realize how lucky they are. And, and I can say that even with my children that were born here, and I always tell them, you know, I don't think you guys really, really appreciate what you have because you haven't been exposed to what I've been exposed to. You know, you don't see how lucky you are. Maybe that's the gift you give your kids. I mean, do you ever, someone like you, can you ever really lose the sense that at any moment you might be arrested? Oh, yes. Look, uh, 
uh, again, you know, when I look at things like that, you know, they, they, they made me a strong person. There was a time where every time I would see a police car, I would shake, thinking, ah, oh, they're coming for me. If I saw the police working, I would think they're coming for me. But, you know, having lived here for all these years and having studied law, having had to deal with the police and, you know, and, and honestly, you know, um, I respect the police. I respect what they do. Even though I'm a criminal defense lawyer, I still respect what they do. Uh, you know, I often have this argument with other lawyers. You know, they will be saying things like, oh, this freaking police, this freaking police. And I always say, well, if it wasn't for this freaking police, you wouldn't have a job. <laughs> Can you believe you're hearing yourself say this, though? I mean, it's a different country, but, you know. <laughs> I know. I it's know. a hell of a thing. But it's just the way, you know, they treat you. You know, they treat you with respect. you got to treat them with respect. I think that's how it should be. So you left South Africa to escape one cliché and you've arrived here and now you are another cliché, which is the overachieving migrant to Australia Seven, did you say seven degrees? Seven degrees in diplomas? Yes. Yeah, what, what are they in? Law and what else? They're in law, communication, uh, you know, human rights, politics, you name it. <laughs> <laughs> so what's next for you? What's next for me? Um, I'm heading back to South Africa. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm even considered running as uh, an independent candidate in the next uh, general elections. Like I said earlier on, you know, I'm deeply concerned and worried about the current situation in South Africa. Things are not getting any better. We're heading towards 30 years since South Africa had its first democratic elections and, uh, and, and things are not getting any better. What about in the town you grew up in? Is that anything's better in Messina? Are there anything's better there than they were under Mopato? Things are worse. Things are, you know, it's sad to say that the economy is worse than it was during apartheid. People can move freely, but you need more than just moving freely. People need jobs uh, with better paying wages. People, you know, the, the crime rate is outrageous. Part of the reason is because people don't have jobs. You know, the educational system is, is so terrible. You need to educate people. You need to create jobs for people. You need to get rid of corruption. The worst thing that ever happened for South Africa was uh, the creation of the black economic empowerment. The idea behind it was laudable because it was about black participation in the economy, which blacks were denied during apartheid. But it ended up creating what I call, you know, an avalanche of corruption, cronyism, elitism, because those in power are only using it to their advantage. They're the only ones who are gaining from, you know, this black economic empowerment, whereas the ordinary person is suffering. Think of it this way, 30 years since the first democratic elections, uh, the basic needs of people are still not met. People are still having to rely on the bucket sanitation system, okay? There's a shortage of electricity. There's a shortage of water, you know? And it's, it shouldn't be like that because South Africa, South Africa is a rich country. It's rich in mineral resources. If the country was governed properly, the ordinary people's basic needs should be met. And, in a, and, and I always say this, you know, and I, I think the problem with Africa, not just South Africa, Africa in general, is that, you know, Africa is not poor. Africa is poor because it's been poorly governed. And, and I think the biggest mistake that Africans make is they seem to think the liberators or, you know, the, the freedom fighters should be the ones running the country. 
I don't agree with that because the majority of them are not qualified to run the country. They run the country down the drain. Look at the history of South Africa. You know, you look at people like Zuma. You know, he destroyed the country. You know, the guy had a year five education, and then you had him running the country. A couple of years ago, you wrote a memoir called Tough Love. And I wonder what that was like for you to write that and to see the end result, to see your long journey from that little town where you're putting out fishing nets in the Crocodile Stream River to where you are today. Look, it was really, it wasn't easy putting the book together because I had to relive what I went through. But in a way, I'm grateful that I did it. You know, you know often they say if you fear something, you should face up to it. And, and I found writing the book, you know, was therapeutic because I had to go through all the trauma. You know, it took me more than five years to put the book together, a book which I could have written in, you know, in three months to six months. But what I would do is I would write and often, I would, you know, it would trigger some memories and, uh, you know, I would be depressed for a while. And then I'll put it away sometimes for about nine months or a year not touch it, and then I'll go back and write it again. And eventually I managed to finish the book. But like I said, you know, I'm, gl- I'm glad I did it because I used to have a lot of nightmares because of what I, you know, I experienced, you know, all the atrocities that I experienced growing up in South Africa. Do you but still that, get those nightmares? Sometimes, you know, in particular when I see um, things happening in Africa, you know, or when, when I see these civil wars, like what's currently happening now, in, uh, in Israel and Palestine, you know, I see things like that. They kind of trigger what I saw growing up as a child. But it's not as bad as before I put the book together. Well, it's a hell of a story, Lovemore. Thank you very much for sharing it. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.